All right, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your evil carnival book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury, which was originally published in 1962. Ray Bradbury is a real gap in my speculative fiction knowledge. Uh, I read the novel Fahrenheit 451 in high school, like everyone else did, and a story of his called The Pedestrian, but that's really been it. But he's come up on our other shows recently in a, a pretty big way, actually. Uh, Brandon and I just covered his story, The Velt, on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. And the connections between The Martian Chronicles and The Fifth Head of Cerberus have been a discussion topic on our Gene Wolfe forum. It was totally coincidental that this book came up on the ATOS list at the same time, but it's been really great for me to be thinking so much about Bradbury all at once this week. And I'm really excited to talk about this book. So, all right, if, if you're ready, let's get into Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's the early 20th century. We're in a quiet town in Illinois. Greentown, to be precise. A fictional town on the outskirts of Chicago. It's October, that time of the year when kids have settled into the rhythm of school and have time to be mischievous again, and when everything is smoky-smelling and the sky is orange and ash-gray at twilight. Our story is about two boys, Will Halloway and Jim Nightshade. They're 13, almost the exact same age to the minute, in fact, and they live next door to each other. They're super best friends, and they are always up to something. The book opens when Will and Jim encounter an ominous lightning rod salesman, or perhaps maybe we should say a salesman of ominous lightning rods. A storm is coming, and he leaves a free lightning rod with Jim Nightshade, who is going to need it. And it is carved with ancient languages. There are Egyptian hieroglyphs and even ancient Phoenician on this lightning rod. That night, Will and Jim sneak out of their bedrooms, like they do most nights, and they run around town. And in the darkest, quietest hour of the night, they discover that a traveling carnival is setting up on the outskirts of Greentown. Cougar and Dark present The Lava Drinker, Mr. Electrico, Mademoiselle Tarot, The Illustrated Man, An Egyptian Mirror Maze, and much, much more. Now, this is before video games, so these boys are super excited about the carnival, and when it opens the next day, they attend with just absolute glee. One of their teachers, Mrs. Foley, is there too, and she has a, a rather harrowing experience in the mirror maze. The boys linger at the carnival after it is closed, of course, and they discover that not everything is as it seems. The carousel, you might call these things merry-go-rounds, was labeled out of service during the carnival opening hours itself, but now the carnival folk are using it backwards. Mr. Cougar gets onto the carousel, and as it runs backwards, faster and faster, he begins to de-age. And when the carousel stops and he gets off, now he is only a boy of 12 or 13. And Bradbury's description of this is awesome, so I'm just going to read it to you. The carousel wheeled, a great back-drifting lunar dream, the horses thrusting, the music ingasped after, while Mr. Cougar, as simple as shadows, as simple as light, as simple as time, got younger and younger and younger. Naturally, Will and Jim are pretty shocked to have seen this, but they are also terrified because it has become clear to them that these people are wicked and that if they are caught having discovered this secret, they're going to be in serious danger. Later on, they discover that the now young Mr. Cougar is at Mrs. Foley's house, where he is pretending to be her nephew, who is visiting from out of state. 
And Will and Jim know what's actually up, and they're worried about Mrs. Foley. And in their attempt to help her, Cougar realizes that they're onto him and tries to stop them. The boys end up getting the best of him, and they end up getting him onto the carousel again, and they age him back, but but it actually goes too far. And when the carousel stops, he's transformed from a boy of 12 to a man of 120, and he's not conscious, and he seems to be in danger of dying. The carnival folk are aware that it's two boys who have done this to Cougar, and that those two boys also are on to their nefarious plan, or, or at least are on to the fact that they have one. What the nefarious plan is is not actually clear yet. So the carnival folk are looking for the boys, though they don't know their names. They stage a series of operations to find them out, including a parade and just canvassing the area with a, a photograph that they have of them. The boys know their town. They, they hide in all the places that adults don't even know exist, like, you know, the sewer system. But the boys are in real danger. They need help. So they go to Will's father, Charles Halloway, who works at the local library. Of course, they don't actually expect any adults to believe them. But Charles Halloway is still very much a boy at heart, and he believes every word of their story. Better still, he believes that the carnival is a real threat and needs to be defeated. And this is where we get some explanation of who the carnival folk are, because Charles Holloway is a learned man who has read just about every book in the library. And this is another brilliant Bradbury passage, so let me read Charles Holloway's explanation to you, or part of it at least. Beware the autumn people. For some, autumn comes early, stays late through life, where October follows September, and November touches October, and then instead of December and Christ's birth, there is no Bethlehem star, no rejoicing. But September comes again, and old October, and so on down the years, with no winter, spring, or revivifying summer. For these beings, fall is ever the normal season, the only weather. There be no choice beyond. Where do they come from? The dust. Where do they go? The grave. Does blood stir their veins? No. The night wind. What ticks in their head? The worm. What speaks from their mouth? The toad. What sees from their eye? The snake. What hears with their ear? The abyss between the stars. They sift the human storm for souls, eat flesh of reason, fill tombs with sinners. They frenzy forth. In gusts, they beetle scurry, creep, thread, filter, motion, make all moons sullen and surely cloud all clear-run waters. The spider web hears them, trembles, breaks. Such are the autumn people. Beware of them. And Charles goes on to explain that Dark and Cougar capture people and, and twist them, and they, they take sustenance and, and energy from corrupting people. They thrive on pain. And this rings true for Will and Jim, who have seen exactly this in the carnival, where they are certain that one of the exhibits is actually the lightning rod salesman, all twisted and deformed into a, a carnival freak. This is a battle between the forces of good and evil, light and dark, the Autumn People, and, and there must be many of them out there in the world, the Autumn People are people who have rejected the light, rejected pity and mercy, rejected laughter. This has all been going on after Dark in the library, and, and just at this point, Mr. Dark finds them. He enters the library, and Charles tells the boys to, to hide while he tries to hold him off, and this is some of the scariest stuff that I've ever read. Mr. Dark just oozes with creep and dread. He and Charles have a polite conversation, but everything Mr. Dark says is laced with menace. 
He's figured out who the boys are, and he knows that they're in the library, but Charles feigns ignorance and really boldly confronts the big bad in order to buy time for his son and his son's best friend. But in the end, Mr. Dark causes something like a heart attack in Charles, where he he drains him of life and will, and leaves him on the floor of the library incapacitated. And then Mr. Dark prowls through the library, searching for the boys, and he taunts them as he draws nearer. And while he is doing this, he, he also is trying to lure them to him, to entice them to come to the dark side. And this is very much like the final Death Star duel between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. But here it's, it's Jim Nightshade in particular, whom Mr. Dark is trying to bring over to his side. And Jim is tempted. He is drawn to the darkness. And he always has been. And this is something that Bradbury has shown us throughout the novel. Jim is always the ringleader in their adventures, always the boy who wants to bend the rules and engage in dangerous activities, while Will is always the one who wants to go home rather than sneak into the haunted house. He's the one who always feels like a coward in the face of Jim's risk-taking. Moreover, Jim has been yearning to leave boyhood behind, to become an adult, And Mr. Dark plays on this, promising to use the carousel to make him 25 and make him his partner to replace Mr. Cougar, to give him a a purpose in life, even if it's an evil one. And Jim doesn't give in to this temptation, at least not at this point. But at last, Mr. Dark finds them, and there just is nothing they can do. He takes them away to the carnival, and just as we are expecting the worst— Bradbury returns to Charles Halloway, who is picking himself up and dusting himself off in the library, and he is determined to rescue the boys and destroy this carnival. Charles goes to the carnival, where he is made a part of the show that night. He and Will are are going to play William Tell with the carnival's witch, but Charles has figured out how to defeat the Autumn People. The, The trick is joy. The trick is laughter, and so he carves a smile onto the empty shell that is loaded into the gun, as well as onto the the bullet that the witch will hold onto to pretend that she's caught it in her teeth as part of the act. And when he fires the blank at her, the power of this smile, of this joy, is like a real bullet, and the witch is slain. And this causes chaos in the carnival, and, and Will and Charles are able to get away from Mr. Dark. But there's just one problem. Jim is still trapped somewhere within the carnival. And they search for him, but there's no luck. And then a a boy comes running up to ask Charles for help. But Charles sees that this is Mr. Dark, who has de-aged himself with the carousel. And Charles embraces this little boy, Mr. Dark, as a little boy, and suffocates him with love. And Mr. Dark falls to the ground, dead and defeated by by joy and love. In the end, Charles and Will find Jim, but he's unconscious and, and really badly hurt by the power of Mr. Dark. But Charles won't give up, and he and Will revive Jim through the power of their joy and their love. They sing and they laugh, and this brings Jim back to consciousness, and it drives the darkness from him. And they've won, and and the book ends much as it began, with Will and Jim running off to have an adventure in the night. It's a, a race to one of their favorite features in town. But this time, they aren't alone. Charles Halloway is with them, something of a boy again, at least for a few minutes. 
And being a boy, boyhood, is one of the major themes of this book. This, this isn't uncommon for Bradbury to look back fondly on his own boyhood growing up in Waukegan, which is a, a far north suburb of Chicago. And Greentown, where this story occurs, is a setting that Bradbury uses a, a lot in his early stories. And it's simply a stand-in for Waukegan. And, and many of his stories capture something of his own childhood, his own boyhood experiences, Something Wicked This Way Comes is no different, and Bradbury has written about the carnival that stopped in Waukegan and made him want to be a writer. And in this book, Bradbury writes especially about the bond of friendship between Will and Jim, a a friendship that is really rooted in mischief. Their bedrooms face each other, and they've developed a a secret system of communication across their houses. And I should say, too, that their rooms are at the top of their houses. And and Bradbury has a wonderful line about this. He writes, Their rooms were high, as boys' rooms should be. From these gaunt windows, they could rifle fire their gaze artillery, distances past library, city hall, depot, cow barns, farmlands, to empty prairie. And I love this idea that it's important to facilitate boys' quest for adventure and mischief. And to make their nighttime adventures even easier, the the boys have drilled handholds into the sides of their houses and, and hidden them behind some ivy. And they know every inch of their town. They know all the abandoned barns and how to get into every church tower. But the library is also important to them. And, and, and reading books is as much an adventure as, as climbing trees. And adventure is the real watchword for these boys. But Bradbury writes here that, of course, they must make their own adventures because adventures rarely just happen by. And ultimately, this idea is what makes Bradbury's depiction of boyhood so magical. These boys make their own adventures. They are a force in the world. They don't just passively accept the world as it is. They change it and they make it fun. They make it mysterious and even scary when they need it to be. This all really resonates with me. Like Bradbury, I grew up in the far suburbs of Chicago, and I was part of an entire community of other boys. We had rope swings we used to jump off the reservoir. We had other rope swings that we used over a creek in the forest preserve. We held epic games of Ghosts in the Graveyard and kicked the can that had us climbing onto rooftops and scurrying in, in bushes. We wore out patches in my lawn playing running bases, and we had a special mud pit for playing rugby. In winter, there was the pond that froze over, and most importantly of all, we lived on top of a hill, and we were industrious about creating the best track for sled wars, and I still have a scar from a snowball fight that I had with my best friend in sixth grade. And like Bradbury, I remember these experiences fondly, and I I would say I even yearn for them, and I would be sorely tempted to go back and do it all again if I could— And that is a big part of Charles Halloway's experience in Something Wicked This Way Comes, where we see how envious he is of his own son, how old he feels and out of place. And so I want to turn to to talking about time and age, and then we'll finish up this section by talking about fatherhood. Time is everywhere in this book, and, and Bradbury has some really gorgeous passages about it, and let me just share some of them with you. Midnight, then, and the town clocks chiming on toward one, two and then three in the deep morning, and the peals of the great clocks shaking dust off old toys and high attics, and shedding silver off old mirrors and yet higher attics, and stirring up dreams about clocks in all the beds where children slept. And then later Bradbury has Charles Holloway think, Christ, 3 a.m. Doctors say the body's at low tide then. The soul is out. The blood moves slow. You're the nearest to dead you'll ever be save dying. And these are really contrasting ideas of what three in the morning is like. It's magical for children. 
but it's practically death for adults. And Charles Halloway spends a lot of energy reflecting on time, and especially on his age. For the era, Charles Halloway is an old father. Will wasn't born until he was in his 40s. And so uh, in his mid-50s, he feels like an old man, like someone who shouldn't have a boy, someone who maybe should be a grandpa. And he very much fears that he can't relate to his son. And I'll return to this in a moment. But for now, I want to address Charles Halloway's temptation. Here is a man who is envious of his son and who thinks about his old age constantly. And now he encounters a magical carousel that could make him young again. And he is tempted by it, just as Jim wants to grow up in a matter of moments. But in the end, Charles knows that it isn't right, that he's had his time as a boy, and that that is not his place in the world anymore, and that he has a responsibility to his family, and especially to his son, who is the the right person to be a boy. And Charles Halloway's arc in this story is to realize that he really can be a true father to Will. And, and in fact, he is well poised to be a fantastic father, an awesome father, precisely because of his nostalgia, because of his critical engagement with his own boyhood. He knows what it means to be a boy. He knows what a boy needs to grow into a good person, rather than one of the autumn people. And in the end, we see that, of course, Charles Halloway has always been a good father, even when he's been crippled by his own self-doubt, and he has been even a father figure for Jim Nightshade, whose own father died several years ago. And indeed, it is Charles's role as a surrogate father for Jim that prevents Jim from becoming an autumn person, and, and that brings him back to life in the end. So this is a book that is about both boyhood and fatherhood, and especially about the role that fathers play in giving their sons a good boyhood, a, a type of boyhood that will keep them in the light and help them become the best people they can. But it is also about growing up. After this harrowing adventure, Will and Jim were never so young anymore, is what Bradbury tells us in the very first chapter of the book. And it's not because they've been traumatized by their experience, though that is definitely one way a writer could tell this story, but it's because they've learned what the world is and what it takes to keep it good, that this is a responsibility that they are going to have as they become adults, and especially if they become fathers themselves. Now, as I so often say, the, the themes are a real strength of this book. I've read a lot of books about childhood adventures, but most of the time the parents are either absent or antagonistic, uh, and sometimes they're just even openly hostile in some way. This is the first book that I think I've ever read that is about kids having an adventure that is also about a good parent. And this is really enriched by the fact that the parent figure in this story has a fully realized emotional arc that is thematically connected to the emotional arc of the kids. It is extraordinarily well done, and I am so grateful, I'm immensely grateful that I've read this book. The characters are also fantastic. Will and Jim are a great pair of contrasts, a light and dark, an introvert and an extrovert, thoughtful and impulsive. They are two sides of a single coin. I think it's probably obvious, though, that my favorite character in this novel is Charles Halloway, but I've probably said enough about him already. I'll say one more thing about the characters, though, and that's simply that Mr. Dark is the perfect horror villain. He is a mysterious and menacing figure, but also charismatic, almost charming. I found myself almost succumbed, almost lured by, by him. Far and away, though, what makes this book really pop is Bradbury's prose style. I've read quite a bit of it to you already, but I, I want to share two more passages that just make my heart sing. 
A carnival should be all growls, roars like timberlands stacked, bundled, rolled, and crashed, great explosions of lion dust, men ablaze with working anger, pop bottles jangling, horse buckles shivering, engines and elephants in full stampede through rains of sweat while zebras neighed and trembled like cage trapped in cage. But this was like old movies, the silent theater haunted with black and white ghosts, silver mouths opening to let moonlight smoke out, gestures made in silence so hushed you could hear the wind fizz the hair on your cheeks. This passage is just full of images, and the the contrast in this description emphasizes the whole idea of the autumn people and what makes them wicked to begin with. They just aren't fully alive. They are frozen and empty and joyless. All right, here's the, the second passage I really loved. At dawn, a juggernaut of thunder wheeled over the stony heavens in a spark-throwing tumult. Rain fell softly on town cupolas, chuckled from rain spouts, and spoke in strange subterranean tongues beneath the windows where Jim and Will knew fitful dreams, slipping out of one, trying another for size, but finding all cut from the same dark, moldered cloth. Now, because I no longer live in the Midwest, and in fact, I live in a climate that I despise, I have a lot of nostalgia for a good Midwestern thunderstorm. I miss them so much with all of my senses, and I do especially miss the sound of them at night, waking up and then going back to sleep while the the rain is happening. And Bradbury has captured all of the magic of this in just two sentences. It's extraordinarily well done. Okay, now it feels like it's been a while since I've done this, so I'm going to indulge myself by saying that although this is meant to be a strengths and weaknesses segment, I just don't have any weaknesses to talk about. I wouldn't change a thing about this book. I loved every word of it, and I think you will too. And so that's going to bring my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs I focused on. I, I think there's a lot more we could say about the motif of time in this story, and I would love as well to talk about mothers. I focused on fathers because I'm hoping to become one someday, but Will and Jim's mothers feature in this story as well in a, in a pretty big way, and, and, and Charles Holloway has some musings about mothers that I think are certainly worth discussing. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you aren't already listening to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, I I hope you'll check it out. At the very least, if if you want Ray Bradbury writing about bad parenting, uh, check out our episode about The Velt. On Twitter, I'm at Geo McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Follow us and give us some retweets to help spread the word about our shows. Next time, we'll be reading The War of the Flowers by Tad Williams. I'm pretty excited. It's been a long time since I've read some Tad Williams. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 